Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39 is our scripture lesson. Chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Of course, our study through this wonderful book, Gospel According to Luke, our series was called Mission to the World. Luke describes for us how God's love and forgiveness sin and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is for all nations, all tongues, all tribes, especially the rejected and the marginalized of His day and our day. If you remember, Jesus is in Galilee, probably in Capernaum. He's been preaching, he's been teaching, he's healing and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Simply means that King Jesus has come to inaugurate his kingdom. The true king has come to restore and to renew and to redeem God's people and all of creation, Romans tells us, that even creation itself groans for the new heavens and the new earths. Kingdom promise goes back to Genesis 3. Like a Polaroid picture, I've used this illustration before. You take the picture, and as you watch the picture develop right in front of your eyes, so too with the coming of Jesus. The King of Kings has come. The already of the kingdom is here. Jesus has come. And you're the not yet, the already, the kingdom that will come in its fullness. The final consummation of the shalom of God, the perfect renewed kingdom of God, is on its way because Jesus has come. And we've been witnessing as we've been walking with Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus demonstrating his kingly authority in teaching the Word of God. His kingdom, power, and authority over evil spirits, sicknesses, illnesses, creation itself. Jesus' kingly authority over the unclean as he touched and cleansed the leper. Rather than imparting uncleanliness to Jesus, Jesus imparts cleanliness to the leper. And then Jesus demonstrated his kingly authority as the Son of Man, as he heals and forgives a paralytic of his sins. And throughout the teaching, throughout the ministry, throughout the healing ministry of Jesus, he's calling people to repent and to follow him. A call to discipleship. That's what it means to be a disciple of Christ. To hear the call of the gospel, to turn from your sin, and to follow and walk with Jesus. Last week, Jesus stopped by a tax booth. And he called Levi, also known as Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, who wrote the gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew was to leave behind his old life of financial security and to follow Jesus. One of the most hated and despised in all of Israel, the the traitor tax collector now is a follower of Christ. We said last week, not everyone is called out of their vocation like Levi was, but true discipleship is a call to renounce the lordship over your own life And reorient your whole life around Christ and the gospel. Mark chapter 8. And this is what Matthew does. And he's so happy. (laughs) He's so grateful. He's so full of joy. That he heard the call of the Savior and he left everything and he followed Christ. He throws a celebration, a feast, a party. In honor of the Savior. And he invites all the other hated, despised traitors to his house to meet Jesus. We saw that last week. And as the population, uh, excuse me, as the popularity of Jesus continues to grow, so does his opposition. We saw that when Jesus healed the paralytic and forgave him of his sins. The religious leaders said he was blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And that's true. That's accurate. But where they got it wrong is their failure to recognize that the God-man, the deity of Christ, was there in the midst of them forgiving sins. 
And as the opposition was rising, they were looking to trap Jesus. We'll see more of that today and next week. They were looking to, to trap Jesus, to show that he was a fraud. He's the false messiah. And some of that has to do with the traditions that they taught. Again, we'll see that today and next week, too. Like when the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled at Jesus and his disciples for eating with these tax collectors and sinners. That was a no-no for them. In their minds, that's not something you do. So let's get into the text and look at the, the problem, really the problem of man's tradition, man's approach to God that turns into legalism and blinds us. Legalism will blind us of the work of Christ, of God's redemptive time, what time it is. Three headings. The main point we'll find in verses 33 through 35 and Jesus contrasting feasting and fasting. Well, fasting and feasting. And Jesus basically is telling him, look, I am here with you. My presence is with you. Now's not the time to, to fast. His presence with them. Then he'll teach two parables. The first the parable uh, uh, teaches both of them, actually the, the, the new and old garments and the new and old wine, really teach, Jesus is saying, look, stop mixing the old and the new. You, you can't put them together. And then the third heading, his promise to them. He said, if you continue, this is the promise of Jesus, if you continue to drink of the old, we'll talk about what that means, you'll miss the new. You can't have both. Under the new wine and the new and old wine, that's in verse 39. So as we get into the text, his presence with him, verses 33 through 35. And if you just, if, you, if, you, you know, if you're reading, hopefully you're reading through the gospel according to Luke. And you'll notice that the other synoptic gospel, meaning similar, Mark and Matthew, have this incident. And it's hard to, it's hard to come and draw a final conclusion in verse 33. And they said to him, who is they? Mark chapter 2, 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people... Mark says, came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? Same thing, the eating and drinking. Mark chapter, excuse me, Matthew chapter 9 says, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Okay? So who, who's actually asking these questions? Some of the commentators, and I think they're right, point out that this incident, this, this, this questioning of Jesus didn't happen when the meal was going on at Levi's house, sometime after that, either that evening or even the next day, but the gospel writers are showing the continuity between this dinner that Levi threw and the questions that are being asked. And there could be a couple of possibilities. Was it John's disciples? Was it the Pharisees? Mark says there were some people. Who are those people? Are they the tax collectors and sinners that maybe are still hanging out by the house or, or, or were involved with this conversation? We're not sure. And sometimes when you see issues like this, when you see gospel accounts, and one gospel account will say there was an angel at the, at the, uh, the, 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 the empty tomb on Easter morning, and another gospel account said there were two angels that were sitting that were there. You say, well, which one is it? It's all the above. That's what I think is happening here. Each one reporting the story. If I go to a party and I see Pastor Chris there, and I say, yeah, Pastor Chris was there. He's not the only one. Someone said, well, I saw Pastor, Pastor Ricky, and I saw Bill, and I saw, well, we put them all together. 
That's what I think is happening here. I think it's important to understand that you have the Pharisees that were there. You have John the Baptist's disciples that were there. He's already in prison. And you have probably these tax collectors and sinners all gathered around. And I think it's important because the question that's being asked by these, these group of people are pointing to the ascetic uh, rituals of the Pharisees and of John the Baptist together. Both groups practice fasting, denying oneself of food, as means of a spiritual discipline. But John the disciples and the Pharisees and their disciples did it for two very different reasons, okay? Both are there. People fasted, and maybe, maybe that's the practice that you do today. People fasted for, for one of the main reasons was to draw near to God, to hear from God, to focus on God. Not eating and, 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 and seeking the face of God. Some people fast, especially um, we see, again, maybe something you do over, over a sign of grief. In the Old Testament, a sign of grief. You know, repenting. Uh, they were mourning and hope that God would deliver them. That's why a lot of times you see the combination of, 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 of praying and fasting, confession and intercession. The hope is that God would answer to the prayer. God would, would, would move mightily. Do you know, according to the Old Testament, God commanded fasting only on one occasion. That's the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement. All other fasting we see is voluntary. It's a voluntary practice. John the Baptist's disciples, we could conclude by his ministry, fasted because John was pointing out their what? Sin. Calling them to repent. To prepare the way of the Lord. His disciples fasted. In the case of the Pharisee, that's a whole different story. They normally fasted twice a week, every week, Mondays and Thursdays, and they fasted to show the world, <laughs> the, the people around them, everyone around them, how pious they were, how righteous and religious they were, how holy they were. We know that because in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus calls out the hypocrites, the Pharisees and the scribes. It says that they, they have gloomy faces. They disfigure their faces that they're fasting Jesus says, may be seen by others. They, they just want to impress people on how much suffering they do for their God. True religion to them was joyless, gloomy, and uncomfortable as possible. Remember their whole life, the Pharisee, they get their name from separatist, from being a separatist. They're faithful to God, but they had this false zeal. And they were strangling people by their multiple rules and regulations. The rabbis actually referred to the fasting as an affliction of the soul. <laughs> Defining it as a sacrificial act of piety. There are times of fasting. You see John, disciples of fasting. You see the Pharisees of fasting. You find people in, in, in both the Old and New Testament fasting. But family, something we must understand. And I'm going to hammer this home the whole rest of the time we're in this account there is an eternal difference between fasting and praying to earn favor with God and fasting and praying because of the favor of God a vast eternal difference between the two religious fasting trying to earn favor is praying and fasting is a work that you do thinking that as you do this, you earn the right to be accepted before God, being allowed into his presence because of what I'm doing. 
That's religious fasting, Pharisee fasting. Gospel fasting and praying is something you do because the work of Christ has earned you your acceptance before God and allows you into his presence. Fasting and praying must be done within the framework of the gospel. Fasting because of grace, not to earn it, but because it's been given to us. We'll get more into that later. Jesus' reply in verse 34 says, it's not time for fasting. Right? He says, my disciples are not engaging in such practices because of his presence with them and what his presence represents, verse 34. Jesus' simple answer is not, this is a time for celebration. This isn't a time for fasting. The wedding guests are his disciples. He is the groomsman, and while he is with them and while he is present with them, they are to celebrate his presence. And this image of, of a groom and a wedding is rooted in the Old Testament where God would talk about his people and the relationship between his people. And in the Old Testament, we saw this in Isaiah, a couple of places in Isaiah, not only of this banquet between a husband and, and his bride, but it's also about the messianic times, the messianic kingdom. And we see when Jesus teaching about his, in, in verse uh, um, 34, can, can, can you make wedding guests fast while their bridegroom is with them? Jesus is teaching us and showing us and showing them this Christological, this understanding that he's the Messiah, he's the king, and this eschatological, this, this end times that the feast and the banquet of God is going to come because the, 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 the bridegroom's here. And, he, and he's teaching the Jewish people, this is what Isaiah is talking about. I'm here right now, and my disciples, the, my guests are not going to fi- uh, fast, they're going to feast. And therefore, I put this up here for you, because this is really what Jesus is saying. It's a recognition that God's salvation, his grace, his mercy, his kindness to his people, has already arrived in the person of Christ as the bridegroom of God's wedding banquet. The bridegroom is among you. And the time period that he's talking about is the time that he is ministering, walking with them, teaching them, ministering to them. It'll culminate in the cross, his resurrection and his ascension. And that period of time is characterized not by feasting, but by joy. Excuse me, not by fasting, but by joy and by celebration. Jesus is not opposing, uh, uh, I should say, uh, going against fasting. I'm sure he practiced it during the Day of Atonement. Jesus is saying there's a time and a place for fasting, and the time is not for the ministry here while I am present with my disciples. That's what he's saying. I mean, what, what, you go to a wedding, we're going to have a wedding here next month. It's a time of celebration. In those days, they lasted for a week. Can you imagine like $2 million, but <laughs> many family and friends would stop by and, and celebrate and eat and drink for the joy, to the joy of this happy new couple. No one says, let's have a feast this week. Even the religious leaders, the Pharisees, I found this interesting. One rabbinical writing in that day said this, all in attendance, this is what the, what, this is what the Pharisees are teaching, all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy, end quote. 
Like, we're going to party. I don't know, we're not going to fast. Free meal, free wine, a week long. Let's, let's fast some other day, right? Jesus is like, well, that kind of rule that you guys have, that applies to me right now. Salvation has come. It is not time for, for fasting. It's a time for feasting. But look at verse 35. Jesus says, there will come a time when the bridegroom will be taken away. And if you want to fast at that point, you want to continue fasting, that's fine. There will come a time when he'll be taken away. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew uses the same verb, taken away, in this verse. He says this. And when they had mocked Jesus, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and took him away to be crucified. There's going to come a day when Christ will be crucified on a cross, die for the sins of his people, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven. If God's people want to fast, they can continue, but not while I'm here. Not while I'm here. And I don't think Jesus is saying, when I leave, there'll be no joy left. The only, the only joy and celebration will be while I'm here. When I'm gone, it's only going to be fasting and mourning. That's not what Jesus said. That's taking the parable too far. But I do believe what Jesus is about to show us in the parable will teach us that even fasting will have a different meaning and purpose because he had come. The king has come. Inaugurate the kingdom. Let's get into the parables. Verse 36. He also told them a parable. Parabalo. Para means beside. Balo means to cast or throw. Jesus is taking something that they could understand something physical and laying it alongside, casting it alongside, something they did not understand, which is spiritual, and the, and the physical will explain and teach more about the spiritual that he's trying to show them. That's what a parable is. And family, I will tell you, you have to be careful when you're reading parables in the New Testament. Because you could take a parable, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of minutes, but we could take a parable and make it mean anything you want it to mean. Usually when you read a parable and you're interpreting parables, it's one or two things that Jesus is trying to teach. That's it got to be really careful. And I, I highly doubt the Pharisees were vastly knowledgeable in their sewing or, or known as prominent like seamstresses. But he's making a point so that they understand. If you have a pair of jeans and it has a hole and you didn't buy it that way, it was purpose that way, like it actually made a hole in it. <laughs> You're not patching with a new piece of cloth that hasn't been washed and stretched. Obviously, if you patch an old cloth with a new cloth, it's washed and dried, the stitches will pull, it will tear, and the hole will become worse. And what Jesus is saying, in his coming, in his presence, something radically new has come. Can't take a piece of new cloth and put it on old cloth. Jesus is talking about the Old Testament ways. And in particular, I think even, even more so, he's talking about the ways in which the Pharisees interpreted the Old Testament economy, the system. Because he's talking to the Pharisees, too. He's talking about their, their self-righteous, earn my way into the presence of God, earn my way into my relationship with God by what I do. Family, the gospel is contrary to that modus operandi. God's salvation, his redemption, comes to us by grace alone, in, through faith alone, in the person of work of Christ alone. You cannot mix the gospel. You cannot mix and match the gospel with man-made rituals and religion. That's the point. People do not cut pieces out of their brand new outfits and sew them into old clothes. Jesus, forgiving 
this paralytical man, the, par- the paralytic man, eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners that flipped them out was not fitting into there the Pharisees' idea of, of who God is and God's redemption and salvation, forgiveness and grace. It didn't fit for them. The mixture of the old and the new is destructive, Jesus says, because it, it, will, it will ruin both pieces of cloth. And the bottom line is their old ways of thinking, their old ways of doing things cannot fathom grace, love, and mercy that Jesus showed to these people. That's the point to these sinners. Dr. Dara Bach, great commentary. The point, the points are clear. The ways of Jesus and the traditions of current religion, even though related to the Old Testament, cannot be mixed without significantly damaging the new entity, end quote. As I said last week, if we're just honest, I think, there's, I think we could say, I'll say for myself, but I'll say for you too, there's a little Pharisee in all of us. There's a little Pharisee in all of us. We may need a new approach to not only, to not only see Christ as the only way of salvation, the grace that he's offering, this new way, but also who can come? What kind of people can come to God? Maybe we need a fresh insight. It's very difficult because we have biases. We studied the book of Acts years ago. and One of the things that struck me was how much struggling, how much the church struggled to deal with the Old Testament law and how the gospel of grace relates to the Old Testament laws. Things like circumcision and food laws and, and Gentiles in general. You get to chapter 10 in the book of Acts, Peter is knocked out. He's in a trance. And God gives him this vision of a sheet. And on the sheet he saw all these unclean animals. and Kill, eat. It was intended really to show that God was not calling the Gentiles unclean. And that Gentiles, non-Jews, could come to Christ by faith alone without passing through this narrow door of Judaism or the Old Testament law. I think we have to continue... We have to continually push against our biases. These days, our political biases. And press on to grace. Jesus needed to say this because he knew that people like the Pharisees, like us, we don't understand the mission completely. We have to see the mission as it is. Jesus coming to give his life for sinners. And when Jesus talks about the new garments or the new wineskins, it's not new in the sense that God got it wrong in the Old Testament. It's new in the sense that Jesus has come. He's the fulfillment of the ancient promises of Israel. The newness is the coming of the promised king and the inauguration of his eternal kingdom. Listen, Jesus is like a new piece of cloth and there's no seamstress worth their weight in salt. We take a new piece of cloth, sew it into a patch, into the old garment. You'll have more than just one problem. It'll tear it a rip and it won't match. That's what Jesus is saying. The new time during the presence of Jesus cannot be wed with old practices. That's exactly what's saying. Now, for us, the Pharisees were self-righteous. And I think this message is, I think the, the bottom line is, how do we not turn that way? How do we not look down at others? 
like the Pharisees, who separated themselves from other people. And family, you hear us say it all the time here. We must regularly, continually, and consistently preach the gospel to ourselves. That would keep us staying clear from being a self-righteous, prideful being. You heard this quote before, Tim Keller. The gospel is we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Remembering, relishing, rejoicing in the gospel will keep us from feeling superior to anyone. Knowing how flawed and broken and sinful we are and how loved and gracious and kind God is. Jesus moves on to the wineskins. You know, if you know anything about wineskins, they're made from sheep uh, skin or a goat skin, uh, and the neck of the container would be the, the, the goat or the sheep, and they would skin the animal. They would, you know, obviously take the, remove the hair. They would actually treat the hide so that when you put a liquid in it, it doesn't change the taste of the wine, then it's sewn together. And the, the natural stretching of this wineskin, when you put wine in a new wineskin, in a fermented wine, it would stretch this wineskin. And anyone knows, you don't take an old, stretched out wineskin and put new wine in, because as it's fermenting, it's going to watch, stretch what's already been stretched and brittle, and it will burst. You lose the wineskin and you lose the wine. Common sense. But again, we need to be careful not to stretch the parable too far. Pardon the pun. Because it could be taken out of context. I've seen this before. These verses, these verses, like, all right, we have new wine and new wineskin and new methods in the church, and 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 you don't that don't want to do any of that. You know, you're not allowing that. It's like Jesus not talking about the methods that we use and tell the verses that you can go. This isn't one of them. You can't just say, oh, we want to do something new. We want to believe something new because it's new wine. That's how heresy starts. That's how cults start. You can see how it's taken out of context. It can apply any way you want. That's not the point. The point that Jesus is making is that his arrival has brought about something new, the new covenant of grace for all people and a new reason to celebrate like a wedding, a guest at a wedding feast. Even when fasting continues, when the bridegroom is gone, they'll be different because of the gospel. It must always be done in the joy of the gospel, the assurance of Christ and the hope of his return. Here's the reality. Old garments and old wineskin represent the old ways of approaching God in worship. Jesus is not saying that everything in the old is worthless. Jesus is not saying, as someone once said recently, famously, I won't give his name, Andy Stanley, you got to unhitch the Old Testament. It's ridiculous. Not only ridiculous, it's it's scary and disturbing. And a lot of things Andy Stanley's been saying lately is disturbing, just throwing that out there. God's revelation of himself in his word and his plan of redemption and salvation was given to us gradually. Gradually. He was revealing himself to us gradually. He didn't drop a book out of the sky. He gave us Genesis 3.15, the the very first gospel proclamation, then through Exodus, through the prophets, through the Old Testament, giving information about himself, information about us, mostly about Christ and his kingdom to come. He established celebrations and feasts, Passover, Day of Atonement, Feast of Booths. All these things were not to be fulfilled in themselves, but in Christ. 
The New Testament tells us that the blood of, of, of bulls and goats can never, ever take away sins. And yet there was a sacrificial system, the slaying of the animals. They were shadows. They were, they were, they were uh, symbols pointing to something beyond themselves. They were pointing to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are those who say, take the Old Testament, and we have to patch it in. We have to try to squeeze it in, the old. Take the New Testament and squeeze it in the old. Or just unhitch it. This, neither is what Jesus is saying. There's an intimate relationship, obviously, with one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, both the Old and New Testament. There are things that are fulfilled and pass away. There are things that are nullified. The ceremonial laws, the dietary laws have been set aside. The moral standard, the moral laws of God, who he has revealed himself to be, that, of course, stays with us. It's who he is. But the point is, everything, catch this, Jesus saying everything must be seen through the new and better covenant of grace. That's what he's saying. The view of fasting, the understanding of the festivals and feasts, the sacrificial system, its, it's temporary ability to allow sinners into a, a presence of a holy God is completely new in the fulfillment of Christ. The gospel, that's what it's pointing to. We cannot view these things uh, through Patching an old garment with a new patch or new wine poured into old wineskin. In other words, viewing a relationship with God through the Old Testament economy, Jesus said, no, I'm here. I'm offering my body. I'm shedding my blood. I'm dying on the cross. I'm, I'm extending grace to sinners. You can't earn that. You can't pour Christ into old wineskins. If you do, listen what Galatians 5 says. I don't think I have it up, no. Galatians 5. I testify, Paul says, to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, if you want to live under the law and try to get right with God, try to approach God by what you do, by obeying the law, if that's what you want to do, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, justified, made right with God, Enter his presence, relationship with God. If you would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Nobody's saying you lose both. If you attach Christ to the old system, you lose what Christ has done and accomplished on your behalf. You cannot have the gospel and just a smidgen of law. It's either grace or it's not. Lastly, those who drink the old ways of self-righteousness, will not even enjoy the new wine. Look at verse 39. This is an interesting verse. No one, Jesus says, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Some of your translations will say the old is better. Now, first it looks like, well, a contradiction of what Jesus said. What he just illustrated. In other words, it looks like he's saying here now, if you drink the old, the more mature wine, and then you realize that it is good, it is better, why would you drink new, un, 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 unmatured wine? No one, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. But if you consider, consider the context, I think what Jesus is saying is more of a rebuke. Almost in a, in a slightly sarcastic tone. You Pharisees... You are so set in drinking old wine, stuck in thinking that it is better, that you'll not desire or be able to see the new way of grace. You are, you'll be committed to the old and never change your ways. 
And he promised if you continue to think you're accepted with God by your moral performance and not by grace, the old way that you're stuck in, you think is good, you'll never desire the new. You'll miss the time that is before you. Redemptive history before you, the coming of Christ, the work of redemption, the means of grace. You're stuck. You're thinking the old is better. You keep drinking it. You'll miss my coming. You'll, you'll miss my dying. You'll miss the grace that's extended to you if that's what you want. And that's what you're drinking. Some people will never taste the new wine of the gospel and rejoice in it because some will never change the taste of their desires. They want to work their way into grace. They want to work their way into a relationship with God. You see, it's just like those who, who say, I don't need a doctor. Jesus talked about that. I, I, I'm, I'm fine. I'm not sick with sin. Some will not taste grace if you don't need, you don't sense a need for it. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying in verse 39. Isn't that, that's the problem of the Pharisees. They did not think that they were sinners like the tax collectors, so they criticized Jesus for going to this party. That Levi threw in his honor. They refused to taste the new wine of his salvation. The gospel is a call of grace. It's a simple truth that God accepts you and me not on the basis of what we have done, what we have performed, but on the basis of Christ. Even fasting and praying, still the basis of Christ. What he has done, what he has performed. See, religion, and I just want to drive this home, is you think you have a right relationship with God, you're working toward it, right living, and if that's you this morning, or that's me this morning, there is no way not to feel superior to other people. There's no way you, that can happen. You, and it has to happen, I mean. You feel superior to them, and if you feel superior to them, like the Pharisees did, what are you going to do? You can do the same thing the Pharisees say, Pharisees did, you're going to walk away from them. You're not going to deal with them, you're not going to talk to them, you're not going to love them, you're not going to care about them because they're those people. Every religion operates on the principle, if I obey God, I do my religious duties, I fast, I pray, I go to church, then God will accept me. That's religion. The gospel is, I'm accepted through Christ, all that he has done, therefore, I will obey, I'll do my religious duties, I'll fast, I'll pray, I'll go to church. There's a big difference. Martin Luther was one who said that the principle of religion, work-based salvation, is the deep default mode of the human heart. The heart continues to work in that way even after conversion to Christ. You see, you and I, and I think this is where we really need to wrap our heads around it, that even though you and I have come to understand the principles of the gospel, saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, our hearts will always be working and, and, and turning and, and trying to return to the mode of self-salvation that leads to pride and self-righteousness. It's just the sin that's in us. Underneath our thinking lies the fundamental refusal to just rest in Christ and his salvation. Our moral performance then really becomes our idolatry. We're trying to work our way and we're breaking the first commandment, have no other God before me. If the heart is always trying to return to self-salvation, it must, at that point, be prideful, self-righteous, and then it will always run from people that we think are less than us. That's the problem. I want to read this quote to you. Again, Dr. Keller. It's a little bit long. We're almost done. Dr. Keller, listen to this quote. If you, me, you, are obeying the law 
If you are obeying the law without deep joy in your acceptance in Christ, grace of God, you're not loving God with all your heart. You're not obeying God for God. You're being moral so that you can put God in your debt so he owes you a comfortable life. If you believe the gospel, that's the grace of God, and understand the difference between religion, work-based religion, or the gospel centered on grace, and you understand that you are in a relation with God by sheer grace, then when you meet someone of a different worldview and religious view, you will love them because if not for the call of Jesus and the grace of God, you would have the same worldview or even worse. But by the same grace gospel we have been saved by, we live in, and we grow up in, it will produce love, not self-righteousness, end quote. That's a great quote. I need to hear that all the time. If you're here this morning like, oh, that's not me, you're kidding yourself. You're kidding yourself. There's something about legalism and self-righteousness that is natural to us. But God's grace has come. Jesus has come. Jesus comes and he brings inexpressible joy and celebration for those of us who see ourselves as sinners in need of forgiveness. It's not something that can be contained within the religion of the Pharisees who, stay want, who want to stay separate from sinners. The religious leaders refused to listen to Jesus' way, believing their old way was better. What Jesus is saying to them and to us today, you cannot come to God on old terms or your own terms by your own works, but through the gospel. In fact, if you decide, if you're the one who's deciding how to approach God, what you're really doing is being your own God, and you're really not at the place of humility, repentance. That's what the religious leaders were doing in that day. And they were dissociating themselves with people who they say were unclean. They were soiled. They were dirty. They were people that I would not talk to. I'm not going to gather. It was the people that Jesus were gathering with. They're stuck in their old ways of approaching God. And they were thinking, that is better. They didn't see what time it is. Do you know what time it is? Do you know what time it is? Are you resting and trusting in the finished work of Christ as your only access to God? As the only way to approach God? If so, pride and self-righteousness will be non-existent. Jesus Christ has come. The king of king has come, inaugurated his kingdom, and the notion that the gospel can be mixed and blended with other religious systems is absolutely false and eternally damning, Galatians 1. Jesus brought a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. The anointed one has brought the fulfillment. And in order to stay focused on that truth, family, we, meet, we must continually preach the gospel to ourselves, focus on the gospel, and, and, and not miss the joy of celebrating who Jesus is, what Jesus has come, as we cultivate the awareness of our need of a Savior. Those who are certain of their own health won't go to a doctor, and those who are convinced that their own righteousness will access to God, has access to God, won't rest on His grace. Unfortunately, we can be like that, Pharisees, from time to time. As we see God's perfect standard, we see our sin. We run to the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God. William Jay, he's a 19th century pastor. He interviewed, oh, let's say interviewed, he went to visit John Newton. Remember John Newton? He's a slave trader turned Christian, wrote Amazing Grace. And John Newton was on his deathbed. And they act, William J. said this. He said, I saw Mr. Newton near the closing scene. In other words, his 
dying. He was hardly able to talk. And all I find I had noted down upon my leaving him was this. What Newton said. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. <laughs> the main takeaway, I think, of this passage is we should, we should ask ourselves, how do we see other people? How do we view others that are not like us? That will be an indication for us whether we're truly resting in the grace of, God, of the gospel. That our only acceptance, our only forgiveness, our only salvation is, is the grace of God in the gospel. You see, if we think of others as sinners, we'll run for them, we won't care for them, we won't love them, and we're seeing ourselves in a self-righteous way. But, if we see ourselves as sinners deserving God's judgment, but... By his grace, through the perfect life of Christ, his atoning death on our behalf, nothing we have done that we are forgiven, loved, and accepted by God, then we will love others. We will show others the grace and the love and the forgiveness that we received. Do you know what time it is? Don't continue to drink from the old ways, for the Savior has come. The grace and love of God has come. Drink deeply of his grace. Drink deeply of his grace. Be humble. Love others. Live on mission. Demonstrating the gospel by showing them the love and grace and kindness that God has shown you. And then declare it. That God loves them. And God's calling them. As he did Levi and he did you. He's calling them to come. Turn from being your own Savior and Lord. Turn from running your own life. Turn from your sin and turn and follow Jesus. Have your sins forgiven. Have your sins washed away. Newness of life, empowered by the Spirit. And walk with Jesus. Let us pray. Father, as I, as I think of my own life, and I'm sure... Many here would join me. There can be a little Pharisee in all of us. And God, you are working in our hearts, not only for your glory, but for our good, that we may see ourselves as people who desperately need grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness that you have given to us through the person and work of Jesus. Father, we pray that as we sing these songs of response, bring conviction to our souls and hearts, what we need to turn from, and how we need to you to work in our lives, that we would not only drink in deeply of the gospel, but Lord, knowing that you forgive us of all our sins. And we pray that as we leave this place, we will see people as you see them, and we will see people in need of grace like you've given to us. And God, we do pray that this week as we live our lives in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our work, in our school, wherever we may be, you'd remind us of the grace and mercy you've shown to us, Lord, that we would be kind, loving, and merciful to others and look for opportunities to tell them the salvific work of Jesus on their behalf. And we pray that you would call many people to yourself. 
May we never stop talking. May we never stop declaring. May we never stop demonstrating the grace and the kindness and mercy you've shown to us to every living creature. We love you. We praise you for our salvation. And we ask, God, that you would allow us to join you in seeking and saving the lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.